If you have your Bible, then I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to chapter 5, verse 11. I know the passage has been read, but I do want to read it one more time. So Acts chapter 4, I will begin by reading from verse 32. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, uh, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thus far, the reading of God's word. The Bible is authentic and truthful in its claims. You see, the Bible tells us the fidelity, the faithfulness, and the fruitfulness of God's people. And when God's people are obedient to him, they experience his blessing and they also experience his presence. However, the Bible does not sugarcoat nor cover up disturbing events. See, the Bible also tells us the ugliness, the rebellion, and the sinfulness of God's people. And when God's people are disobedient to him, they experience his cursing and even experience his discipline and his punishment. And we can consider we can consider some of the famous characters in scripture where they had periods of faithfulness but then became disastrous in their life. 
Moses, for instance, he defied, Moses, he defied Pharaoh by means of rescuing the Israelites from slavery. However, he also defied God in the wilderness, which prevented him and barred him from the promised land. Israel was doing well as a nation under the leadership of Joshua when they conquered the land of Canaan and took the promised land for themselves. However, one generation after Joshua, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baal rather than God. David has success at the height of his uh, kingship over in Israel. However, that success quickly went downhill after he murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Insofar as we know in the book of Acts, the church of Jesus Christ has been nothing but positive. There was an explosive growth under the preaching of the apostle Peter. And the followers of Jesus and also the new believers had a dynamic fellowship and devotion to the Lord. And even under intense scrutiny and persecution from the religious leaders earlier in chapter 4, the church not only survived, but also continued to thrive. Satan wants to find every way to thwart the church from growing, but his tactic in using external pressure did not hurt the church. However, Satan is always crafty. He will find every way to damage, to hurt, and even to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And so instead of using external pressure, he uses internal pressure. See, if Satan's tactic in using the religious council, the Jewish council, to attack God's church did not work, then he will, he will tempt and he will influence those from within the church. And usually the latter is more deadly than the former. James Montgomery Boyce, he said this, and I quote, The church is always under attack by Satan, but his attacks are not always from without. They are often from within. End quote. And so in this passage that we have read, there is a final glance of the church without blemish as the church was together, sharing with each other and selling their possessions and giving the proceeds. And specifically then, Luke highlights a character that was a prime example of a faithful giver, Barnabas. See, Luke could have just ended the book of Acts at chapter 4 and not have chapter 5 and onwards. However, Luke is not an idealist in trying to paint a perfect church. He's a realist, rather. And sadly, we see for the first time in Acts that sin entered into the church. And Luke wants us to know that the early church was imperfect. Now, our English Bible here is divided into chapters and verses. Unfortunately, Chapter 4, verses 32 to 37 is cut off from chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And I would argue this passage is actually one section. And I think the reason is because Luke is trying to make a contrast between two characters. And that is the point of this passage. He's trying to make a, two, make a contrast here. And in stark contrast to Barnabas, Luke highlights a character who was a hypocritical giver, Ananias. Now, I say Ananias because Luke specifically tells us that it was him who directly gave the proceeds to the apostles, not Sapphira. For sure, she knew about it. She only knew about it, but she is still guilty and responsible 
for conspiring with her husband and lied about the proceeds. Therefore, this passage tells us a tale of two givers. A tale of two givers. And when I use the word tale, I don't mean it's a fairy tale, it's real, it's a historical narrative. I just thought it was a clever title. So, a tale of two givers. There's a faithful giver, and there's a hypocritical giver. Now, let's look at the, the faithful giver, or faithful givers of the early church. See, in verses 32, in verses 32 to 35, it describes the general activity that occurred in the early church. And much of this section parallels the description found in verses, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. If I can get the slide to work. Okay. So this section, however, would also include the new believers found in chapter 4, verse 4. And already we see the full number of those who believe they are in unity. They have one heart and one soul. And Luke describes that these Christians had everything in common, meaning they had fellowship. They were able to meet each other's needs, and they needed each other. They needed each other. While at the same time, in verse 33, the apostles were meeting people's spiritual needs, which is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ by giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And as a result, there was great grace upon them all. Uh, there, there may be two ways to understand this phrase, great grace. First, it refers to God's grace that was so powerfully at work in the apostles and enabling them to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, for the forgiveness of sin, for the salvation of mankind, with great power and boldness. And they did so with great power, not by their own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you must remember, back in verse 31, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And Jesus promised back in chapter 1, verse 8 in Acts, that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Now, so that's, that could be one of the meanings. But the second is, in the latter part of the text, great grace can also refer to God's grace that was at work in moving the believers who shared their belongings among the community so that there was no needy person as described in the following verses. See, in verses 34 to 35, we are told that the believers who owned properties sold them and laid them at the apostles' feet. And as a result, those funds were then distributed and met the needs of the people among them. Now, you need to be careful into of jumping into conclusion that these believers immediately sold everything and gave them all. Now, and maybe some of you hate grammar and technical stuff, but it is important in this instance you have a correct understanding of the original language. Because grammatically, what, is, what this is all saying is that the word here for soul is actually in the present participle. And the word brought is in the imperfect tense. It could be translated as they were bringing. And so what this means is that combining all these verbs, verbs together, they were actually gradually liquidating their assets, not selling everything immediately all at once. And what's fascinating is that this is a sign that they treated each other as a family. 
as, a, as family members and as companions and friends who are worthy of compassionate care. And in this community of God's followers, Christ's followers, they did not lack anything. And additionally, there is absolutely nothing wrong about Christians having money and being rich and owning properties. But not all of them were rich. See, Daryl Bach gives us a cultural background of who owned properties in the ancient world. He said this, and I quote, Some members owned houses and land, part of a very small middle class in the first century culture, about 10% of the population. The upper class was even smaller, constituting 4 to 7%. These members of the new movement are selling what they, are, what they have and bringing the proceeds to the community as represented by the apostles who, who oversee the distribution of resources, end quote. And even many years later, the apostle Paul would write to Timothy to instruct the, the rich in the congregation. He said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may hold of that which is truly life. And the apostles here, they had the responsibility and the authority to oversee those, these proceeds. And so that's why the believers laid them at their feet. And these apostles, they, they did not take those funds, they did not take those money and spend it for their selfish and personal uses, unlike the prosperity teachers nowadays. Rather, they used those resources to distribute them to the needy in their community. And now we look at verses 36 to 37 where Luke focuses, he narrows our focus on a particular member of the church named Joseph. And he's also called Barnabas by the apostles. And, his and this is, will be his name for the rest of, uh, of the book of Acts. And we learn that his name means son of encouragement. And indeed, this name is well chosen because he's so instrumental. He's an instrumental of the church that God used later in Acts. For instance, if you don't know the, the history of the Apostle Paul, he was actually a persecutor of the church, and then he got saved by Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And then many Christians during that time were very skeptical about him and because they, were, they didn't know if he was pretending to be a Christian. They didn't know if he was pretending to be a Christian so that he could use that opportunity to persecute the church. However, Barnabas being Barnabas, being a son of encouragement, he accepted and he invited Paul into his life and into the church. He introduced Paul to the suspicious Jerusalem congregation. He loved him, and he encouraged him. What a name, what a man. And not only that, he's a Levite. Now, it's interesting that as Levite, if you know the history of the Old Testament, uh, Levite actually did not own properties in the Old Testament. But here... Uh, he owned a property. He owned a field. And in some scriptures in the Old Testament, it actually prohibited the Levites from owning properties. Now, perhaps, maybe the situation has changed for the Levites living in the first century. 
living in the first centuries because Rome occupied the land of Israel. And then not only that, he's a native of Cyprus. He's a native of Cyprus, which means that Barnabas, he was a diaspora Jew, which means that he's a Jew who lived outside of Judea. And he most likely had an understanding of the Greek culture, which makes him a suitable minister to the Greek converts in the church of Antioch and also a missionary partner with Paul later on in the book of Acts. And he's the prime example of being a faithful giver who gave out of a generous and pure heart without pretense. He shows us how a person sold a field that was his own property, and then he turned the money from the sale to the apostles. He's one of the many godly examples that churches are to recognize and to celebrate. And he's a positive figure as a way to draw a contrast between him and Ananias in the next passage. And so we're going to look at the next passage. So I would encourage you right now to buckle your seatbelt because we're going to experience, experience turbulence here. We're going to learn about the hypocritical giver. Now, it should be shocking for any Christian to read this passage and not feel the weight of what is going on here. This is the first visible manifestation of sin committed in the church by a married couple. And when sin entered into the church, leaders, the leaders like the Apostle Peter, confronted those two sinners. However, what is even more shocking is not the confrontation, but what is very shocking in this passage is that after what happened, they died. They just died. What's going on here? Well, like Barnabas, Ananias sold his property, but he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And not only that, his wife knew about it. Now, what, is their, what was their motive? Why did, they do what they, why did they do what they did? I think there may be two motives here. First, the motive is to make themselves look dev- devoted and pious on the outside. They used this opportunity to make a double profit, gaining spiritual prestige while also making money on the side. However, on the inside, they're hypocrites. And it's the deadly sin of hypocrisy. Ananias lied about giving the whole proceeds while keeping some of it. Second motive could be found, is found in verse 9. I don't have it in the slide, but look at verse 9 here in your text. They wanted to test the Spirit of God. They wanted to test the Spirit of the Lord. Now, what is meant by this? What, what does it mean to test the Spirit of the Lord? And there are numerous nuances to this phrase, to this word, testing the Spirit of the Lord. You see, they had attempted to see if they could lie to the Lord's Spirit and not suffer punishment, or they wanted to see how far the Spirit would go in His tolerance towards sin. Or maybe they wanted to see how far they could go in presuming on the forbearance and the grace of the Lord or they want to see how much they can get away with their sins. Or maybe they wanted to test the Spirit's ability to be, dis- 
to see if he's able to be deceived. Well, regardless of what happened, what they were doing was very foolish. The sin of hypocrisy is actually very deadly. It is an outward pretense masking an inner reality. Scripture condemns hypocrisy, especially in matters of faith. It is when deeds do not match words. It is the tendency to judge other sinful behaviors while also committing those sinful behaviors. During his earthly ministry, Jesus confronted the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And Jesus warned his disciples about hypocrisy because it can be expressed with insincere motives. And Jesus makes this point very clear in the context of hip- hypocritical giving. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so for Ananias and Sapphira, they were misrepresenting their generosity. They were lying about it. This was a financial fraud. But how did this happen? How did this happen? The church was so positive. It was so pure so far. Everything was good, but this happened. How did this slip into the church? How could this happen to the married couple? How could they do such a thing? And I think the answer is found in Peter's confrontation with Ananias in verses 3 to 4. In verses 3 to 4. And as the leader here, as the leader and the apostle and the elder of the church, Peter had the responsibility to confront and address sin in the church. Now perhaps maybe there are some of you this morning who take issue with the idea of confronting a sinner because oftentimes it's perceived as unloving. See, whenever Christians take a strong stand against sin in the church and to correct errors and sins, some may just show up and just accuse them of being unloving and, and being ungracious. And I sympathize with that because it's not comfortable. But I will also say that, you know, it's not a pleasant feeling for a church leader who has to initiate that confrontation Confronting sin can be done with an unloving motive, but however, if the intention is in the right place, if the motive is out of love for Christ and for the truth, then I think confrontation can be done out of love. See, we must not compromise and hold up the banner of love while allowing sin to spread like gangrene and contaminate the church of Jesus Christ because that is not loving Jesus. And his bride. Now, the text doesn't tell us how Peter found out about this deception. Perhaps, most likely, as John Calvin would say, it was by the revelation of the Spirit that Peter learned about this matter. And so Peter asked him four questions. He says, 
you ask them, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You see, it is interesting that the first sin to enter into the church was lying and hypocrisy, which are characteristics of Satan back in Genesis chapter 3. And just like Ananias, Satan told a half-truth to deceive Eve and then cause Adam to sin as well, and that's, that was the fall of humanity. Satan tempted Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit. And if you remember what happened to Judas Iscariot, Satan filled Judas' heart to betray Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. And see, wherever God is at work in the church, Satan is lying around the corner waiting to attack God's people. And this is probably something that Peter learned, and he instructed the suffering Christians with these words. And this is, this is also instruction for all of us. He said this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour, to, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then the second and third question he asked, why, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So in other words, the property still belonged to Ananias and Sapphira before it was sold. They were not obligated to sell their property. It is still their ownership. And, and also, they can choose to give all or some of their proceeds if they wanted to, or they could choose not to give at all. It is up to their choice. No one was forcing them. It's all voluntary. And I think both of these questions counter the notion that Christians are to be no socialist, and must share all their resources with others. Now, Peter does teach the right of private property here. And the, right of, and the right of private property is probably not the most important point in this whole passage, but it does demonstrate and tell us that owning property and possessing property is not the problem. It is lying about selling it and giving it all. Now, there's a final question that Peter confronts him with. He asks, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? See, while it is true that Ananias was tempted by Satan, but ultimately, Peter held him accountable and responsible for putting this evil deed in his heart. You see, this word, contrived, means that he has purposefully done this. He purposefully set himself to accomplish something, and that is to look outstanding before others and to test the Spirit. From time to time, I have known believers, a few believers, who do not truly or fully take responsibility for their sins that ruin their lives and their relationship with other people. Instead, they sometimes... What often happens is human nature. We, we shift the blame to other people. We're blaming on this person and that person. And, and then there are some Christians who would blame Satan for everything. They would include Satan as the one to blame for their sins. And they blame it on the devil. And he would say, they, he would, they would say, he made us, he made me do this deed. 
Ananias could have responded to Peter this way, but Peter holds him accountable. Peter holds him accountable and responsible ultimately. Ananias cannot blame. He cannot blame the devil for his sin. It is clear that he chose to be deceitful. And the question that Peter asks is very forceful. And in fact, I think there's an emotional aspect to this question, which could be framed this way. How? Just how could you do this? How could you do this? And just like parents who grieve whenever their children rebel against them, so pastors, elders, and church leaders grieve whenever members of the church commit egregious sins. And then Peter makes this statement, you have not lied to man, but to God. Ultimately, he, he lied to God. And this actually teaches us about the doctrine of God, the Holy Spirit. Because, connecting back to verse 4, we learned that the Holy Spirit, He's not a force. He's not a thing. He's not an impersonal being. He's not an it. He is God. He is an eternal being. He is a person. He's God the Spirit. He's co-eternal and has co-essence with the Godhead. So ultimately, Ananias lied to God the Spirit who regenerated him and filled him with power. And after Peter's confrontation, something shocking happens. Ananias dies. And the text says that he fell down and breathed his last. Just, what's going on here? This seems so odd. This seems so out of the ordinary. Why did he die? Was it because he realized after hearing Peter's confrontation that he actually lied to God and not just to Peter? Or was it a, a medical condition? Some scholars would say it was perhaps a heart attack that was brought on by the terrifying realization of his embarrassing guilt and his shameful exposure. Or was it because of God's judgment? Did God do this? Now, this is merely a speculation, but I think Peter must have been shocked as well. Peter must have been shocked as well. Imagine what happened. This never happened to him in his life. This didn't happen to the religious leaders who interrogated him and John. And who knows how long Peter knew Ananias for. Did they have a close relationship? Did Ananias and Sapphira open up their homes to demonstrate hospitality to the apostles and to the Christians so that they could break bread together? And if he were a new believer, then I would wonder how long, was, uh, how long Peter was discipling him for. All those questions, all those speculations that I think about. However, but regardless, we know that Ananias just died right in front of him, and his story is over. That is the end of him. And now we turn to his wife, Sapphira, in verses 7 to 11. And we are told that the married couple weren't together in a previous event. Three hours after the death of Ananias, she appears. Now, it's it's actually very interesting when you actually study the text. It's very interesting that nobody spoke to her about it during the three-hour interval. You see, some critical scholars would challenge this part of 
the verse as being unreliable or being unrealistic because when someone dies, the family member should know immediately. However, Luke doesn't supply us all the details for why she made an appearance three hours later. We are not certain if, the, if someone went, was sent to fetch her immediately or whether she needed to be found or perhaps she was just doing some shopping at a nearby mall in Jerusalem with the remaining proceeds or maybe she was doing makeup. But just because she came three hours later, it doesn't mean, it doesn't make this event less true and less reliable. And, but in just a moment, I'll, suppl- I'll supplement one reason. What is absolutely clear in this verse is that she did not know about her husband's death. And now Peter speaks to her. And, but Peter, he does not immediately report the death of her husband. Rather, Peter wants to know if Sapphira would tell the truth. Of course, like Ananias, she also lied about the proceeds. And Peter confronts her with a question, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? He is deeply concerned that they were united in trying to test the spirit of God, and he exposes their conspiracy. And quite often, history repeats itself, does it not? Israel tested the Lord, and then they were destroyed. Now let's return to the puzzling question. How come she appeared three hours later? And I'm going to suggest that the narrative itself might give us at least one reason for her late appearance. Uh, we, knew, we, we do need to remember that the death of Ananias was so unusual. It was an unusual circumstance. And I think during those three hours, Peter might have had to use the time to ponder what happened, because like I said, he might have been shocked as well to witness this tragic event. And by the, by the time Sapphira comes into the picture, I think Peter understood what just happened. New Testament scholar Har- Howard Marshall suggests that Peter recognizes the death as a divine judgment. And then he contemplates how to handle the situation. See, after lying to the apostle, what Peter says to Ananias in verses 3 to 4 is partially similar to what he says to Sapphira in verse 9, but only with one additional statement that he says to her, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. He says that to her, but he doesn't say that to Ananias. See, Peter did not predict that God would smite Ananias after he rebuked him. And now in verse 9, perhaps this was added because Peter understood that this was divine judgment. And knowing that she lied, Peter predicts that her fate will be the same as her husband. And both of them were buried immediately on the same day after their death. But let's not miss the let's not miss what happened after they died because of God's judgment. In both situations, notice carefully, great fear came upon all who heard of it. Great fear came upon the whole church. 
I see what a contrast from Acts chapter 4, verse 33, where great grace was upon them, and now there's great fear upon them. Such direct and severe divine intervention in chastening was meant to cause the church of Jesus Christ to fear God and to take sin seriously and to purify the church. Great fear is indeed a rightful response to a manifestation of God's presence in divine judgment. And it involves both reverent awe and a healthy fear of God's displeasure and discipline towards sin. And now as you consider the teaching, the challenging part of this passage, there may be some questions that you're wrestling with. First, were Ananias and Sapphira truly born-again Christians? And second, why was God so severe? Why was he so harsh towards them? So let's answer the first question. And it's a tricky one because theologians have good theological and exegetical arguments from both sides. See, those who argue for no, they were not truly believers, they may ask, is it possible for truly born-again Christians to be deceptive? And then they may quote 1 John 3, where John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. However, I think, I think that they were genuine believers because the text, the context of this text seems to indicate so. See, back in chapter 4, verse 32, I believe they were included in the full number of those who believed. And I believe they experienced God's great grace in verse 33. And if they were believers, then I believe there are lessons for us to learn about sin that all Christians need to heed. And and then we get to the second question. Why was God so severe and harsh towards them? And then there would be maybe other follow-up questions from this, and that is, why did God not give them a second chance to repent? Why did he not allow them to go through a process of church discipline? See, the simple and truthful answer to these questions is that God is absolutely holy. He is holy. He abhors sin. Therefore, in his deep and tough love for his people, he took the initiative to purge sin in the church and to purify the church because she is the bride of Christ. But also, I want to note this, that this is one of the many exceptional cases of instant judgment. In the Old Testament, we had Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. They were consumed by God because they did not follow God's instruction in a sacrificial offering. So even in this instance, I think this is an exceptional case. And aren't you glad that this was an exceptional case? However, don't put your guard down. Let's not miss what God is communicating and telling us in His divine judgment upon a brother and sister in Christ. It is to bring, down to your, bring, down, bring you down to your knees in the fear of the Lord. It is to humble you, to consider the seriousness of sin and the sinfulness of sin. Although God doesn't always respond in instant judgment, He often does discipline His people, His children, in different ways 
when they walk in sin. He may use trouble at work. He may, bring, he may use hardship at home. He may use the travail in the ministry. God may allow us to experience loss. God may send physical ailments, but often God will allow, just simply allow the natural consequences of our sin to run their course. But why does God do that? See, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 tells us that God is our loving, he's our loving heavenly father. He's our father who knows what is best for his children, and one of which is discipline. And I, don't, I know maybe some of us don't like that, but that is the truth. And there are many reasons why he disciplines his children. He, tip, he disciplines them because he loves them. If you're a parent, then you, you know that for yourself, that you love your children. And another reason why God disciplines his children is to make them more mature. Another reason is to increase their capacity for virtue uh, or to keep them on the right path or to grow their faith and to purify, purify them from sin. And as, re- as a result of such discipline, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 says that, that God disciplines us for our good. For what reason? For what purpose? So that we may share in his holiness to grow in maturity, to grow in our maturity, spiritual maturity, and to increase in the fear of the Lord. And then many years later, many years later, recalling this event in Acts chapter 5, Peter writes this in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 to 18, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so, just to summarize what we have learned, the point of this narrative is to create a stark contrast between two givers, Barnabas and Ananias. One was a faithful giver, and one was a hypocritical giver, along with his wife, of course. One was commended for his generous giving without pretense and pure heart. And he did, he did so with a pure heart. He was a man of integrity who loved the church. The other experienced the chastening of divine judgment for hypocrisy and lying and deception. Hypocrisy is a perilous sin. It can ruin your life. It can hurt your testimony and witness for Christ before your friends and family members and co-workers, and you can even influence and cause others to stumble as well. And so if you're here this morning, and you know, deep down in your heart, you know you have been acting in hypocrisy, then you need to, this is a time for you to repent, to repent of your sin, to turn away from sin, turn away from hypocrisy and turn to Christ. You need to stop playing the church game and be honest with yourself. To obey the Lord is better than your religious sacrifices on a Sunday. And also, you need to, what, you need to consider what it means to follow Jesus, because he did not act, practice hypocrisy at all. There is no deceit found in his mouth. He came to the world full of grace and truth, and yet, all at the same time, he went to the cross, and he suffered, and he died, 
for the unrighteous. He went to the cross and died for the hypocrites and for the sinners so that those who trust in him can be justified and be made right with God. During my sermon preparation, I was a bit surprised that I'll be preaching this text on a Sunday where we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper, celebrating communion. What an interesting providence of God. And I think it is a fitting text because it should force us to examine our own hearts before the Lord, before we take the bread and the cup. And so I'm going to, be, I'm going to pray. And before I pray, those who are Gary and Brian who are praying aside, you can come up. And so let us pray before we consider the Lord's Supper this morning. Father God, thank you for your word. And sometimes we don't enjoy and like um, being corrected. Sometimes your word is difficult to swallow. And I pray that we will be honest with ourselves because it is your word that corrects us. And please help us to receive your instruction. Help us to receive any correction and rebuke that we need in our lives. Lord, please be gracious to us and help us to grow, even from this text, to really be warned and to take sin seriously and not to play, uh, to, to play with church, but to be real to be authentic, to be, to, have a, to be a man and woman of integrity before you. So God, I pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, help us to do so with, with thankfulness and gratefulness of, of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, but also help us to do it with reverence as well. This I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.